Hello and welcome along again to the Northern Agenda podcast, your weekly look at what's making waves in politics in the towns, cities, suburbs and villages of the proud north of England. I'm Rob Parsons, a journalist based in Leeds who follows the ups and downs of regional politics in our region and I try and make sense of it every day with an email newsletter called The Northern Agenda. This podcast is my once a week chance to take a deeper look at some of the big issues in the North and speak to people in the know for their insights and expertise. If you like the podcast, why not leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts as it helps us reach more people across the North. This week, I ask what is happening in the steel city of Sheffield with its new council leader, Tom Hunt, who's plotting a bright future after a turbulent few years, but has a few big issues on his plate, such as keeping his Labour colleagues in order and dealing with a massive pay equality claim from the unions. Listen out for my interview with Tom coming up next. And I've been finding out from Northumbria academic Katie Shaw about an innovative initiative led from the North, which could mark a turning point in how the country goes about its vital research projects. But in day-to-day politics news, we're in party conference season, which means politicos, pundits, business types and hangers-on will be filling up the hotels of Manchester this week for Conservative Conference and Liverpool next week for Labour. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak told BBC Radio Manchester during a series of local radio interviews this week that he'll be driving to Manchester because of rail strikes which make it impossible to come up from London by train. But the big issue dogging him wherever he goes on interviews and likely to hang over him during conference is whether he's planning to take the axe to the biggest infrastructure project in the north, HS2, meaning it won't come to Manchester as originally planned. There has been fury from northern leaders this week at the suggestion that Sunak's government, which has already lopped off the eastern leg of HS2 to Leeds, might stop HS2 in Birmingham to save money. Listen out for next week's episode of the podcast, which I'll be recording live in Manchester, to find out if he's made a decision yet on this massive issue. And now, let's hear from our guests. Now, as the Westminster political circus up sticks in the next few days for conference season in Manchester and Liverpool, what better time to reflect on the role that big cities like those and others in the North play in our country's future? This week, there's a major new report out from the UK Urban Futures Commission about how we unlock the potential of the UK cities, whether it's through policy, funding or even the way they're governed. One of the cities that's helped contribute to the report is Sheffield, and my guest today on the podcast is the Labour leader of Sheffield City Council, Tom Hunt. He is only a few months into his new elected role after a turbulent period of politics in the steel city, which saw the fallout from the long-running street tree scandal and other policies lead to the local Labour Party being put into special measures. Sheffield's leaders have very high hopes for the city's future, but with austerity cuts and the cost of living crisis still hitting hard, how easy will it be to realise them? So let's find out. Tom, it's great to have you on our podcast today. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Why don't we start with the big question that's posed by this report, uh, namely, how do we unlock the potential of Sheffield and cities like it? I know you're really keen, you said this publicly, for people in the city to talk Sheffield up in maybe the way they haven't been doing previously. Tell me your vision for what Sheffield could be and how do we get there from where we are now? Sheffield is a city of makers, creators and innovators. And everywhere I go, I see 
potential. I see people bursting with talent. And for too long, we've been held back. We've been held back by underfunding from central government. And that's underfunding in our core public services at the council, but also in our infrastructure. And the way in which we're going to boost our potential and continue to be on the up is by making sure that we put our cities at the heart of our national future. And what the Urban Futures Commission report sets out is that cities really matter. For too long, we've, we've focused on London and the southeast, and we've overlooked the great potential of our core cities around the UK to contribute to the UK's economic performance, but also cities as a dynamic um, place where great things can happen. And this report sets out that we need a national industrial strategy which puts cities at its heart, but also that we need to attract more private sector investment into our cities. And that's one of the things that we're really focused on here in Sheffield. I know there is obviously some you know, big developments in, in Sheffield city centre, uh, like the, you know, the plan for the, the Cole Brothers store, which uh, has been empty, empty for a while, and, and various other things going on in the city centre. I mean, how different do you see Sheffield being in 10, 20 years? Like, what, would you, what changes would you like to, like to see in, in the city of Sheffield itself? We're a growing city, and I want us to grow even more. We've just passed in the City Council our local plan, which sets out how over the next decade and a half, we're going to build 36,000 new homes and create 43,000 new jobs in our city. We're going to do that by densifying our city centre, where there's a plan for 20,000 new homes. So I see a, a denser, dynamic city centre where we're building on the great strengths of our world-class universities. And I see a city where we regenerate the east end of the city, where you know it was the home of our steel industry, but for too long it's been underused and underpowered. And now we're the home to the UK's first investment zone, and we want to use that to unlock the huge potential that there is for, for the land in the east end of our city, but also to capitalise on the on the fantastic innovation coming out of our universities and great companies. That, that investment zone was launched with an announcement that Boeing were investing into a new research facility here in Sheffield. That's the kind of uh, world-leading expertise that we want to be attracting here, but then having spin-off benefits for lots of companies in our supply chains. We want to make sure that we're continuing to be the best city we can be to live and work and grow up in. We're the outdoor city, the greenest city, and you know these are all massive uh, assets for us to build on. Now, um, Will, you mentioned the, the local plan. We might come back to that shortly because that has, has been a, an element of controversy uh, in recent days about that. But in terms of cities more generally, I, I'm, I'm guessing there are similar conversations to one that we're having about Sheffield happening in other big cities. And I know quite often there are comparisons, aren't there, between the different cities. People in Leeds compare themselves to Manchester and maybe people in Sheffield sometimes compare themselves to Leeds and other other areas. I mean, how would you say... Sheffield is doing compared with other cities in the north and do, do you think there is an element of competition to it is it sort of a zero almost like a zero-sum game where for one city to win another city has to 
do not so well or can also tease. No, I, sort of I reject that. I do reject that entirely. I think that's the sort of uh, the zero sum approach is one that um, we need to break away from. And that's exactly why this report is so helpful because it sets out exactly that cities, um, that our core cities should be operating like a network that will boost economic growth across the country. It does us no good if we're pitting cities against city. And this is what we've seen over the last 13 years under this government, where each of us has been forced to competitively bid for resources from central government, um, often at the cost of one city gaining over another. What I would like to see is investment in, for example, transport infrastructure across the north so that each of our northern great cities benefits and we're operating like a single labour market across the north rather than thinking if we invest here, this city wins and this one loses out. We should be thinking about the positive reinforcing uh, gains that we can have by investing in upgrading our infrastructure across the north. But no, I, I would do think that we hold ourselves back if we constantly are forced to compete in the way that we have been over the last decade. Now, I suspect something that not everyone will know about Sheffield politics if you're not uh, from the local area is that for uh, a year or so now it's been run that Sheffield Council has been run by a series of uh, committees rather than a leader and cabinet model which is what most local town halls tend to employ. There was a referendum back in 2021 where people of Sheffield chose this uh, relatively radical new model for the way of running things. And I, I was following the debate as it was happening. And it seemed to be the debate was framed as a sort of trade-off between democracy and allowing and making sure everyone's voice was heard. And if you elect a councillor, you want them to have a say on what's happening, which some people felt wasn't happening under the old system. But then there's there might be a bit of a trade-off in terms of the effectiveness of a local authority that is run by committee rather than by a sort of stronger leader model. That was kind of how the debate felt to me. And so I'm kind of interested in how how it's played out since then. Is the new system sort of helping Sheffield's ambitions to be, you know, a strong and vibrant city or is, or is it making it a little bit harder to do that? We need to be focused all the time. And I, I am, as the leader of Sheffield City Council, on how we can improve outcomes for people in this city how can how can we improve lives and i think the governance conversation in sheffield is an important one and we want to make sure that we're doing things as much as possible with people not to people but i was elected last year in may 2022 when the committees came into being I don't know the old system. The committee system is the governance model that was, as you say, voted for by people back in a referendum, and we're making it work. We have a cross, I lead a cross party administration, and 
everything we're doing, whether it's improving our city centre, whether it's getting through the local plan, whether it's setting out plans to make sure that we are giving every child the best possible opportunity. We're, all, we're doing this through our committees. We're doing it cross-party and it is working. Last year, we passed a balanced budget without needing to go into reserves. We did that cross-party with the, through our committees. So the system is working, but we don't just want to make this change um, to committees and then stop. We're ambitious to do more democratic reform. We look at the ambitious plans that Oliver Coppard set out for a citizens' assembly and think, could we be doing other citizens' assemblies or citizens' juries in Sheffield. There are, there are lots of ways which we can let people into the conversation about the future of the city. It's not committees or nothing else, but they're working and we're getting on with the job. So, yeah, as you say, with as part of the committee system, you as the Labour leader, you you, you work with the uh, opposition Liberal Democrats and the, and the Greens uh, on the council. But um from what I can see, one of the, perhaps a, a bigger issue in recent days has been uh, the sort of internal management of the local Labour Party. Uh, a few days ago, seven Labour councillors, including the former leader Terry Fox, were suspended by Labour for voting against the whip in the, the council meeting you described, where you were voting on this long-awaited draft local plan. I mean, how worried or confident are you that internal divisions in Labour in Sheffield are going to hold the city back? How much of an issue is that potentially? It's not an issue. We are, my group, the council is entirely focused on doing everything we can to improve people's lives in the city. We're setting out an ambitious vision to improve our city and that's what the local plan was about. We set out a plan for 36,000 new homes over the next decade and a half, 43,000 new jobs, building on greenfield, uh, building on brownfield land and protecting our green belt, making sure that we're delivering our net zero ambitions. This is exactly what we are focused on. And the council took a big, important step forward by passing that. Um, the internal uh, conversations that we're having in the Labour group are positive and you know the vast majority of of people are, are on board with this and those that aren't will they stay within labor like the likes of terry fox will they be allowed back in if they sort of change their position i can't comment on individual suspensions that investigations are, are taking place but i'm entirely focused on making sure that we are delivering for people in sheffield i see um you mentioned earlier the sort of financial challenges that, that councils face. And it's been um, reported this week that uh, Sheffield Council is the latest to be hit by a uh, equal pay claim from the GMB union over alleged sort of pay disparities going back a few years, um, very similar to the one in Birmingham, which ultimately tipped Birmingham Council over the edge into uh, Section 114 notice, so effectively declaring bankruptcy. Um, I know, like all town halls, um, Sheffield is having to save a lot of money. I think you've got, you've had, you're making £47 million worth of savings this year, which is, I think sounds like an awful lot. And uh, there's a, a budget gap of £61 million over the next four years. Is that going to curtail your ambitions at all? The, the amount of the extent to which you have to cut 
your budget and how concerned are you about this latest uh, pay claim, which obviously in Birmingham's case has resulted in it having a massive bill, which has ended up, you know, putting it into effective bankruptcy. Well, look, our financial situation is we've been put in this position because of 13 years of being hammered by central government. We've lost 29% of our funding that we're able to spend on services delivering for local people. That's nearly £900 per person in this city, way higher than the national average. So that's the context. The figures you quote are exactly right and we are making sure that we're having a being open and transparent about the challenges that we face so that residents are aware of just what it is that we're dealing with the concerns that the GMB union have raised are serious and you know need proper care and attention yesterday my colleague uh, Fran Belbin deputy leader of the council myself met with the GMB to discuss their concerns. It was a positive, constructive meeting, and we're now waiting for the GMB to share with us the full details of their concerns. We expect to get that later this week, but at this stage, um, it's not possible to say what the extent of that will be. We'll assess the information when we receive it, but we take it very seriously. Equal pay is a legal right, and we will be keeping people informed about this. The final thing I just wanted to ask you, Tom, is a big, the big uh, sort of cultural story, I guess, in 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 uh, Sheffield that has been playing out over the last few weeks. The future of uh, the Sheffield, uh, the Lead Mill, famous venue, gave a uh, you know seen the likes of pulp and uh, Arctic monkeys, uh, you know, thrust into the limelight uh, thanks to playing there. I uh, you know, I've had a lot of fond memories of going going there myself when I used to live in. Sheffield. Um, there's been a big row over the last year or so. The the company that owns the lead mill they want to kick out the the current tenants, the people who run run the venue, uh, and they want to take it over themselves. They applied for a shadow license for the venue, and they were granted it uh, last week. But there's been a huge campaign by people worried about what will happen if this company takes over. I mean, obviously, this is something that's been dealt with by your licensing department. But as a council that is you know, you, you take a leadership role, I guess, in the, the culture of the city. I mean, do, do you do you have a stance yourself on on what's going on at the lead mill or are you content to sort of let it let it play out and see see what happens? Well, look, the, the lead mill is is much loved, as you said, Rob, and it's it's hosted some of the world's best bands um, at the top and on, on the way up. It holds a really important and special place in our music scene in the city and many people in Sheffield have got fond and special memories of it um, from within the city and further afield. What I would say is now that the uh, licensing decision has taken its decision, you know, we can reassure residents that the premises license held by the Lebmos management team is, is valid. The venue is remaining open and will be run as normal. Um, and you know, we're a statutory licensing authority and we have a legal duty to be fair, unbiased, and we treat every license application the same. Um, I can't comment much beyond that because we, at this stage, we don't know whether there'll be um, further proceedings um, coming forward. But what I would say is the lead mill remains open. We understand the huge importance that it has um, had over the last 
few decades. Um, and, you know, we're a city with fantastic musical heritage and we want to make sure that we are, as a city council, supporting our nighttime economy, making sure that there's, you know, a brilliant cultural offer for the people of Sheffield. And we're attracting people to come to the city to see gigs, to see comedy, to see club nights. And we're in the process of developing a new cultural strategy and all of that will be right at its heart. Tom Hunt, leader of Sheffield City Council, thank you so much. Thank you. Now, when we talk about levelling up and trying to spread prosperity outside London and the South East, the weighty topic of research and development, or R&D, doesn't always get as much attention as areas like transport or the state of our town centres. But actually, the issue of where research to find the innovative ideas of the future takes place and also the kind of research that's done really does matter. At the moment, R&D is dominated largely by London and the Greater South East, but ministers like Michael Gove want this to change and say that doing so will help boost productivity, pay jobs and living standards in places like the North of England. So I'm very interested in a new project that's been announced this week by the Arts and Humanities Research Council and hosted by Northumbria University with the help of an extra half a million pounds of investment that will open the door to research for more people and in more places. So it's great to find out a bit more about it with a friend of the Northern Agenda, Professor Katie Shaw, who is Director of the Creative Communities Programme at Northumbria University and is one of the main people leading on the project. Hi, Katie. Hi, Rob. How are you doing? Good. Not too bad. Not too bad. Thank you. So this sounds uh, really fascinating, this, this project. Can you just tell us a bit about the new, there are five new community innovation practitioners, aren't they? Just can you explain what, who they are, what, what will they be doing and where, where in the country will, will they be? Sure. So our new community innovation practitioners that we're launching today are going to be part of a unique pilot scheme that's going to try and action some of the recommendations made by our earlier report this year that looked at the need to kind of facilitate and support greater cross-sector collaboration in research, particularly with communities, and to invest equitably in R&D across the whole of the UK. So our CIPs are going to be working in some key challenge areas relating to the levelling up agenda, things like education and skills, health and well-being, the environment, civic identity and pride in place. And they'll be working with their cross-sector partners and communities to either tackle a shared challenge that's specific to their devolved context or perhaps to try and tap into an opportunity that is facing their community today. And they'll be producing a series of podcasts explaining this and capturing the voices of the people involved in their collaborative R&D. And they'll also be producing a series of policy papers thinking about what can we learn from collaboration and co-creation, particularly in the different devolved contexts of Wales, Northern Ireland, Scotland, and in the case England, Liverpool, which is where our five CIPs are going to be based. Fantastic. So they're spread quite widely around the country. And for people who aren't sort of in the, you know, in the research space and don't know so much about this area. How is this model of research that you're talking about? How is it different to what we see generally in terms of uh, you know academic research? And and I mean, how will it be more sort of inclusive than what what currently happens? It's a good question. I think you know it was highlighted to me today um, earlier today in an interview where somebody called us kind of a disruptor as a program, and I absolutely welcome that because I think the things we're trying to do differently are designed to disrupt. Quite often we see research funding 
um, being centralized into particular areas, particular locations, as you mentioned in your introduction, um, often in, in big cities and city regions, being focused on single researchers um, and also subject to these kind of hungry hippo style competitions where you get everybody bidding in quite aggressively for a small pot of money. So we've tried to take all of the learning and listening we've done as a programme and action that by thinking about having different aims. So our programme enables and rewards collaboration cross-sector rather than competition. It's very different in its approach. So we've used for the first time video applications to try and encourage more diverse applicants and help the applications represent the full range of people involved in developing research rather than just the voice of a single researcher speaking for everybody. And it's very different in its outputs. You know, we want the RCIPs to produce podcasts and case studies and policy papers. These are outputs that are designed to be shared and talked about, not just necessarily traditional journal articles or books that might get published behind paywalls, for example, and are hard to access. So we're taking on a very different focus in our research as something that is by everybody and for everybody. And hopefully will move us towards a much more inclusive innovation ecosystem in the long term. This stems, you mentioned this early, this stems from a report by all for all that your organisation helped put together a little, a little while ago. Can you just give us some of the context uh, of that report and how it sort of sets the scene for what we're, what we're hearing about today? Yeah, sure. So the report is available on the Creative Communities website, creativecommunities.uk. Um, it looks back over more than a decade of R&D funding for cross-sector cultural collaboration across the whole of the UK, all four nations. And it draws together some of the really amazing work that's been achieved to date, particularly funded by AHRC and UKRI Public Engagement. But it also highlights some real challenges about how we engage new research partners and particularly non-academic partners and communities in research and real challenges and how we capture the value of collaborative research and its potential spillover benefits for the economy, for society and for civic and well-being more broadly. So by keeping our partnerships going through this pilot and by trying to grow them, we're trying to build on the recommendations of the report to think about how we can target some of those key levelling up pillars we referenced earlier with pump priming partnership capacity and particularly thinking about how we can use devolved contexts, whether that's devolved power and administrations in the nations or indeed the regions under our mayoral authorities to think about legislative capacity like the Future Generations Act in Wales, for example, and how that can supercharge some of these collaborations in R&D. Let's talk about uh, a sort of related topic, climate change, because one of the practitioners who uh, who you're you're funding in Liverpool, uh, in Wales is focusing on climate change uh, and the response to that. And I think you're also hosting a, a policy lab on climate and environment in the cultural and creative industries next year. And you yourself have uh, this week you've joined a hundred economic analysts in expressing deep concern about the big topic that's been in the news recently, Rishi Sunak uh, sort of watering down the UK's net zero climate change targets, the obviously the, the, the target for phasing out petrol cars by 2030 is now going to be 2035. Um, can you just tell me a bit about that? What, what prompted you to sort of uh, put your head above the, the power pit in that particular way? I think, again, it probably goes back to the the point we made earlier that with a lot of these key issues that have kind of been framed by the levelling up agenda, and I include environment and climate in that, 
um, it's a useful lens to approach them, particularly when we're thinking about how we can funnel R&D and innovation and have these kind of challenge missions that we can all come together to collaborate in. Because, you know, these are these are areas where they're beyond any one person and beyond any one sector. We have to come together if we want to tackle them, but also that we have to we have to step up. Okay, it's no point just just looking at the planet on fire and thinking, oh, yeah, that's somebody else's problem. You know, R&D is all about the challenge and the opportunity and climate change and the environment is one of the biggest opportunities and the biggest challenges facing our cultural and creative industries today. Whether that's how we think about heritage and community heritage, particularly and community ownership, which is what Alex, our CIP, is looking at in Swansea uh, with local communities and cross sector partners there or whether we're thinking about in the creative industries, for example, how we green the screen and think about more carbon neutral film sets and recording um, facilities across the UK and how we grow those in a sustainable way that isn't adding to our carbon footprint. Same for touring theatre productions. These are, these are challenges that are going to be all the better tackled if we do them collectively rather than isolation. And I think that, you know, I'm a, I'm, I've got a cultural economist background. But if you look at that letter today, it's signed by economists across the sector because we recognise that, of course, this is a cultural issue. Of course, climate change is an ethical issue, but also it's a major economic issue. You know, it's going to be something that could cripple us as a country in the long term if we don't all step up and tackle it together. Should we finish on a, a positive note, Katie? I know from uh, following you on social media that you like, you love getting around the country, particularly the north, seeing all the amazing culture our different communities have to offer. Obviously, that's you know part of your part of your your role at Northumbria University. Uh, can you give us some top tips, maybe three top tips for must see culture in the north? Things maybe people might not have heard about, sort of cultural attractions that they should go and check out while they while they can. Oh, what a question. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm lucky enough to look after a UK wide program. So I do get around the kind of the four nations a bit. But I think at the moment, I mean, I know you had Andy Haldane on the podcast a few weeks ago talking about the new Northern Cultural Corridor um, concept that he's working with with the RSA and with us. And I think that if we're thinking about that, like a corridor running from Manchester to Newcastle, then I mean, you know, we've got Manchester Literature Festival on at the moment, which is amazing. You know, we've got the world leading authors coming to the north to do amazing Q&As and workshops. Um, I'll be hosting Lisa and Andy there talking about levelling up as a plug for that in October. And then further up the north, we've got Leeds and Leeds 2023, an amazing annual programme you know, 12 months of events and and sculptures and interventions and mini festivals. And that's going on all the way through till Christmas. And then as we get a bit further up into Newcastle, where I'm based, um, I guess the biggest thing I've seen recently in terms of how much it's kind of stayed with me is Northern Stage's production by Daniel Blake. Um, It's reworked from film for the stage. And unfortunately, that, that, you know, that film as a, as a play is more relevant now than it was then. So the North as a whole really is this amazing cultural powerhouse. And I think we can see through those kind of just those three examples, how much culture is being supported and grown in the North and indeed trailblazed by our mayors and those three combined authorities. Um, and we just really need to focus on the, the cultural value of what we're doing here um, and how we can use this to supercharge the North in the future. There's so much going on, isn't there? I live in Leeds, and I, I yeah, I, I've checked out a few of the Leeds 2023 uh, events so far. There's a, a huge amount of uh, diverse stuff happening. So, Katie Shaw, Northumbria University, thank you so much. Very welcome. Thanks, Rob.
Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.